David A. Price presents... Hello folks, welcome to Marvel Noise episode 418. I'm your host, Steve Raker, back in the comic book bunker after bushwhacking my way through the Savage Land, not understanding a word that the guide provided to me by the swamp people had to say. Marvel Noise is the semi-monthly podcast proudly sponsored by Nobody. Our scope is all things Marvel with a particular fondness for and fascination with the Bronze Age. You can find, listen to, stream, and download episodes past and present over on marvelnoise.com and get new episode announcements, give us feedback, and see cover galleries on our Facebook and ex-Twitter pages. Plus, you can find other fine podcasts from our benevolent warlord Derek Coward and his Deliberate Noise Network, which include Indie Comic Book Noise, our sister show where we talk indie comics. This episode, Andrew the L.A. Rabbit and WWX Kevin will be on for a supervillain classic from the pages of Captain America, plus a summertime recent reads roundtable overflow session. First, though, it's a fourth installment of Solo Submariner Tales. You can find parts one to three on episodes 405, 408, and 416. This will take us through Tales to Astonish 95 to 99 from the summer into the fall of 1967. Stronger than a whale, he can swim anywhere. He can breathe underwater and go flying through the air. of Atlantis is the prince of the deep. Tales to Astonish 95 from June 1967 was written by Roy Thomas and Raymond Marias, who also wrote some Doctor Strange and Hawkman for the Distinguished Competition, with art by Wild Bill Everett, the Submariner's creator, and inks by Vinnie Coletta. While swimming back to Atlantis, the Submariner and Lady Dorma discover this large domed city, and Namor's all, are the surface dwellers mad? To, to think that I would even allow such a thing to stand within a few leagues of my golden realm. And I'm thinking, this giant domed complex would have taken years to build, and Namor didn't notice any of the construction happening right down the block, so to speak. They finally finish, and now you got a problem with it? Namor starts bothering some welders who are working on some exterior repairs, and the underwater complex's leader comes out in like a flying saucer-shaped underwater vessel. And he's a pretty friendly chap. He's got nothing to hide. He's a marine biologist running a research facility, totally peaceful. They don't even have weapons. His name is Dr. Walter Newell, making his first appearance. But not his last, because he'd someday become the Stingray in that cool red and white costume that... You know, puts him right up there with the Prowler as a fellow D-lister with a cool, memorable costume. Here he's just a scientist-turned-facility leader whose explanations the Submariner isn't buying at all. Namor tells him and his crew to get out of Dodge, but as he and Dorma depart, they witness the domed city come under siege, attacked by a weaponized submarine whose captain is the Plunderer. 
Kazar the Jungle Lord's modern-day pirate brother. He wants to take control of the complex, but when a laser cannon's beam is deflected by the underside of Newell's flying saucer craft, it's like he just like lifted the um, underbelly and it ricocheted off, it hits the dome and cracks it, and the city starts flooding, and all the inhabitants are like rising water and everything. Namor takes the position that, well, you know, it serves them right. They knew the risks. But when Dorma points out that the plunder is firing on the escape vessels, too, Namor acts as the hero we all need him to be and boards the plunderer's sub and socks him right in the kisser. Walk. But the plunderer's men, meanwhile, capture Lady Dorma. So Namor, I mean, he clearly swims out of the sub the same way he came in, although the sequence is really oddly scripted as if the plunderer activated a vacuum weapon that sucked Namor out of the vessel, but he's depicted like with his legs sticking out of this porthole tube as if he's confidently flying through it in formation, not helplessly pulled by a vacuum off his footing or something. Plus, he's off to rescue Dorma, so he wanted to leave plot-wise, too. It's a weird little scene, but... The plunderer rams the city with his sub, and Dr. Newell rescues Dorma twice. And even with all his years of work and his city crumbling to dust around him, his priority is saving the blue woman. You know, he's a good dude. Namor takes Dorma back from Newell as the plunderer makes his escape, leaving this trail of destruction behind him. Issue 96 is written by Ray Marias with art by Everett and Werner Roth with inks by Coletta. And uh, this one's got a beautiful Dan Adkins cover with Namor like rising out of the water in the foreground with his fist up and back like he's Tarzan holding a knife, right? Like brandishing a knife. He's facing the plunderer who's standing on the obviously named shores of Skull Island. Shoot, it's, it's got to be a swipe of someone holding a knife. It's like too perfectly that posture and looks slightly awkward with it being a fist, but it's, man, the, uh, the anatomy and the line work is really nice Dan Atkins stuff. So 96 opens with Namor in his throne room, calling for his generals and his armies. The time for diplomacy is past, and he's declaring war on the surface world. You know, the domed city, the plunderer, they're all nails in the surface world's coffin. But his visor, Vashti, suggests maybe going after the plunderer first, since he's the one who's actually responsible for the carnage, and he's the obvious bad guy here. So off goes the submariner, tracking the plunderer to the Savage Land, near the site of the original Atlantis, where Namor grew up and used to play with the penguins, who, if I'm being honest don't seem to remember him at all. At the crumbled gates of old Atlantis, the submariner is attacked by a school of these like Chinese stylized serpents. Really colorful too for underwater creatures. They're downright goofy. Namor searches the ruins of the city and finds his mother Fen's grave and recalls the explosions from above that decimated his city, killed his mother, scattered his people, and made him an amnesiac for years until found in the Bowery by Johnny Storm in Fantastic Four number 4. He never could remember what caused those explosions, the amnesia and all, 
but it was probably those stinking surface dwellers, so war it is, you know, when he gets back. Imperious Rex. Namor makes it to Skull Island, where the plunderer is ready to bring the world to its knees with his mammoth Vibra Cannon, with the mightiest striking force known on the planet. Avoiding being one more giant sea creature's lunch later, Namor approaches Skull Island, but's blasted back by the cannon. Also caught in the blast is the Lady Dorma, suddenly appearing and rushing towards Namor, who had no idea, neither did we the reader, that she was following him all this time. She never stays put. Namor confronts the plunderer and punches him in the face again, but the plunderer mentions Dorma's floating helplessly in the sea there, so Namor rushes to her as if she's going to drown out there or something, but she's fine, of course, she's Atlantean, right? The Submariner orders her back to Atlantis, but nope, go. I'm not going to hear it. Go. Then Namor goes after the plunderer again and gets hit with a handheld Vibra gun and is captured. Ah, Imperious Rex. In 97, written by Roy Thomas with art by Werner Roth and Dan Adkins, the plunderer gives Namor and us readers his history. How he found the Savage Land while looking for old Atlantis, and how his brother Kazar and the X-Men foiled his plans back in the now-classic X-Men number 10. But now Kazar's in New York via that issue of Daredevil, so he's free to do his Skull Island hideout thing. Heck, the only other humans in the Savage Land are the Savage Swamp people, and they'd never be able to... Well, well, meanwhile, a group of swamp men attack the plunderer's guards outside, and they accidentally shoot the wall off his complex with a mini vibro ray that they grabbed from one of the guards. And that frees Namor, who beats on the plunderer a little, until the swamp people leader drops a boulder on Namor through a hole in the roof. Never be able to my butt. The plunderer escapes with his weaponry loaded onto his sub, and lights his fortress ablaze as he leaves, thinking he's killed Namor, and probably a few more of those swamp people. The Submariner awakens and also escapes, also saving the swamp leader who dropped the rock on him, earning a celebration dinner at the swamp, swamp people's village. You guessed it, no tablecloth. And Namor's like, I'll go after the plunderer, uh, but maybe spend another hour here first. But in an unexpected twist, Dorma, having caught a glimpse of Namor in chains in the plunderer's hideout, really wrongly assumes she's certain, in fact, that Namor is now in cahoots with the plunderer, and they're going to attack the surface world together. You know, she saw it with her own eyes. So she and Vashti assemble a council of elders, and Namor is branded a traitor, and he's exiled from Atlantis, along with his ambitions to attack the surface world. But in an even better twist, the plunderer's sub isn't headed for the surface world just yet. His first target? Atlantis. Tales to Astonish 98 sports the bluest Marvel Comics cover ever. Art by Dan Atkins with those colors by Sam Rosen. The Roy Thomas, Werner Roth, Dan Atkins team continues this tale. Namor leaves the swamp people and visits his mother's grave again. You know, if he could only remember who bombed Atlantis, that led to the destruction of the city and her death, but 
you know, surface people. So Ward is, again, he's tripling down. Then he's attacked by a giant killer whale, but he tames it and rides it back to Atlantis to rally his army to take on the Plunderer and the surface world. But the Plunderer is already there, vaporizing buildings inside Atlantis left to right with his vibra ray. And, and Atlantis is firing back with their uh, ground-to-sea cannons, floor-to-sea cannons, I guess. The blasts come close to a U.S. Navy military submarine overhead who drops depth charges in response to what they think is an attack, hitting and breaching the hull of the plunderer's vessel. It's taking on water, so he abandons his sinking vessel and henchmen in this, like, single-passenger pod. But Namor arrives just in time uh, to be blasted out of the way by the plunderer pod's twin cannons. The Submariner declares that the fleeing plunderer will never escape as long as Namor the First lives, but then he proceeds to not lift a finger and the plunderer escapes. <laughs> I, I kid you not. The U.S. military tries to stop the plunderer's pod, though. At least somebody does. Dropping more depth charges that unfortunately cause collateral damage inside Atlantis... And in the last panel, the Atlantean military is sending six fully manned giant warships after the Navy. Where were these guys when the Plunderer's sole vessel was attacking? And didn't you just exile a guy for wanting to attack the surface people? Writer Archie Goodwin takes the reins in issue 99 from October 1967 with art by Dan Atkins. Namor moves to stop the Atlantean warships, even though he wanted them to attack the surface world when he was in charge. Right? There lies the rub. He doesn't want them to attack the surface world without him, basically. He even voices that opinion. But another warship is then launched from Atlantis, this one with the fabled Hurricane Inducer on board. Uh-oh. Namor's got to get to that ship. The U.S. Navy sub, meanwhile, is being chased by the Atlantean fleet that's led by Warlord Seth and ultimately escapes. Namor boards the vessel with the hurricane inducer, fights his own men, and sabotages the weapon, which had already been, like, start charged. So, like, it's gonna blow. The crew evacuates and Namor pilots the doomed vessel away where it can more harmlessly explode, which... Warlord Seth witnesses and declares Namor a martyr and a hero, perishing to save them. Namor, on the other hand, doesn't know this and decides the best way to prove his innocence is to attack the surface world. Wait, what? <laughs> I'm so confused. Namor keeps changing his mind, and the Atlantis Council does too. Alright, that's enough shifting motivations for one segment here. Just a couple of issues of Tales to Astonish to go before it'd become the Incredible Hulk series and the Submariner would get his own book. The goal is in sight. I've been wanting to read that entire series. Just have to get through this early material first. Okay, time for Andrew and Kevin to join in for a Bronze Age supervillain classic, 
and then some more summertime recent reads. Stronger than a whale, he can swim anywhere. He can breathe underwater and go flying through the air. Alright, I've got the Avengers assembled here. Andrew is here. Kevin is here. And not long ago, Kevin, you stated really that you really didn't think much of Dr. Faustus as a villain, you know, for Captain America or as a villain overall. I mean, and right, maybe rightly so, but you pose the question, is there like a classic Dr. Faustus story? Is there like, like a Bronze Age? Like that's the, is there, is there any good Dr. Faustus stories? Something along those I mean, lines, right? <laughs> but that, but that was a modern story. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Right. But when you're, we're, when we're looking back at where these, all these villains came from, like what made him be a nostalgic character for a modern yeah. writer to want to go to. And I think uh, Kevin kept trying to connect him to the Tim Vigil Faust character. <laughs> nice. <laughs> now available in hardcover <laughs> from Black Mask Studios. But that made me think of the one Dr. Faustus story that I do really remember digging as a kid in Captain America that ran from Captain America 231 to 236. Although I didn't have all the issues as a kid. I only had a few of them, so it was piecemeal. In fact, after my house fire when I was in fifth grade and I was uh, rebuilding um, my collection, uh, that was one. this was one of the things where it's like, I need to get those issues I didn't have and get like this whole story. Not only do I want the ones I had, but I want those other ones too. And it's Captain America 231 to 236, it's just before the Stern Burn era, and yeah. and Stern is actually the editor, so it's kind of like how uh, Denny O'Neill took over writing Daredevil after Frank Miller stopped writing Daredevil, but he had been the editor on Daredevil. Like, oh, who's going to do this job? Well, I kind of feel like I uh, have been pretty involved in the book and know the you know the, the vibe. I I know what the editor's going for, right? <laughs> like. But I was eight. What's funny is I had one of these as a, an early back issue. So, oh, nice. I mean, not n- entirely unknown, but you know, not not obviously not super memorable. But except for the cover where Sharon Carter has this massive gun and it's like, "I gotta kill you, Cap." That's one that I bought off the shelf as an eight-year-old too. <laughs> I was eight when this storyline came out and nine when the last issue came out and they ran from December of 78 to June of 1979 with uh, Roger McKenzie being the writer and Sal Buscema providing the pencils with Don Perlin as the inker most of the time and uh, Jack Abel filled in on uh, issue 235. We're going to give a partial writing credit for all the Kurt Busiek letters. <laughs> yeah, right. Complaining letters. Oh, my gosh. He was a nag. They must have hated getting letters from him. <laughs> also, I should comment on the covers. They're all drawn by uh, Keith Pollard, except for 235, which is a Ed Hannigan cover. But the 
Pollard Milgram, and then the last couple are Pollard Joe Sinnott. But uh, hats off to Keith Pollard. Did a lot of good cover work back in the day on this book and others. But this storyline opens with like a fallout from a crossover with the Incredible Hulk. And the Falcon leaves the Captain America and the Falcon team. You know, remember the book used to be a double a double bill. But it's on good terms. They're not like mad at each other or anything. But the title would never again be Captain America and the Falcon, even though they would do a spin-off title in the 2000s that was Captain America and the Falcon, right? With the Bart Sears art. Yeah, that uh, that was a struggle. Because I'm, I'm like, I think it was Christopher Priest. So that's right. probably why I was reading it. Yep. And then, uh, yeah, that artwork, I was like, ooh. <laughs> Muscular. <laughs> I know, I know. Like I remember the Bruce and the Babes Wizard thing, but still, even knowing it did not prepare me. A little continuity-wise connection is that with the Falcon leaving the book this month, he would appear in the Avengers the next month in the famous Too Many Avengers issue, where at the end Hawkeye expects Gyrick to name him as one of the members and he picks the falcon who wasn't even an avenger because like they wanted somebody with color on the team or whatever and he's like the falcon what so that's where he goes from here but cap splits with shield which is another kind of closing one chapter of cap's basic um status quo they kind of don't offer him the respect that he deserves and yeah he's Kind of ticked off about that and leaves. Yeah, with, Shield with doesn't off. come off great here. Not at all. I always like when Cap mouths off to authority figures because it's the right thing to do if they're acting like jerks. He's going to stand his ground. Always been a fan of those. The other thing that's weird is the he always calls people son and yeah. everything. Yeah. You think about it, he was frozen in the ice forever. So he's. Well, he's technically older. It's not like he's really seen the cumulative years because he yeah. was an he was a capsicle all those years, so it doesn't count. It's also he's the most trouble for doing the traditional kind of sliding scale continuity thing, where you know every seven years or whatever it resets because they link him to World War Two. Because in the seventies, it was still easy to think of him running into other world war ii vets yep not that there's uh obviously they're still alive today but they're not working job you know he's not going to run into them like he runs into various people like oh cap you saved me back in the war like he'd be only if he's going to like a retirement home or something well yeah he does so run it's into the occasional different... shopkeep or something right who was yeah. like oh you yeah. saved me in auschwitz <laughs> it's and now it's his supporting cast that's more trouble than him because you can just say he is a popsicle for longer but when yeah. he runs into people like peggy carter or something and the timeline keeps on moving it's like things start getting like kind of awkward yeah he's but for me he was always the one because it's why i like those i mean i like the stories i grew up with but it's kind of fascinating reading the 60s and 70s because while he's a man out of time and all that, he's not that far out. Like m- most of the people, unless they died in combat, would have still been alive or anything. Where now, 
obviously it's a much larger stretch if he went in and came out in 2010 or 2015 or whatever. Right. That's a pretty long break as opposed to well, this. Well, now where... they're just all robots. Like they're <laughs> Robo Dugan or whatever. And they're like, oh, my best buddy. He's still around. <laughs> Thank God for LMDs. So <laughs> Cap returns to his New York City apartment, but it's trashed. He hasn't been there in quite some time because he's been hanging out with S.H.I.E.L.D. So we get like get a montage where I was hearing in the back of my head, like, let's hear it for the boy or something like that. And Cap's like resetting the furniture and setting the lamppost back up and refluffing the pillows and and vacuuming. They show they show Cap vacuuming <laughs> yes. away. What I like is he's wearing half of his unit. Like he doesn't <laughs> he's not taking the secret identity that seriously. He has his red booties on and his blue pants. Also, he makes a note about he opens neighbors isn't mine, but I don't want my neighbor cleaning up his place at two in the morning or whatever. It seems <laughs> seems like Cap could be a little more considerate, both of his identity and of his neighbors. What a daredevil move, though, doing all that stuff like, yep, total Matt Murdock thing. Like coming into the law offices. He's just walking around without his mask and everything. And you're like, don't you know what's happened to you before? <laughs> Have you learned nothing? Like you said before, Cap runs into his old love interest. Now, pal, Mademoiselle Peggy Carter in uh, Sam Wilson's vacant office. And she sets the story in motion here by giving Cap his new mission. The problem is that S.H.I.E.L.D. agent Sharon Carter has gone missing after she and another agent attended a rally in Central Park of this neo-Nazi white supremacy group, National Force. They, they got white costumes, masks, burning swastikas on their armbands, and they're led by the mysterious Grand Director. I always thought the Peggy Sharon stuff was a little weird. Like, yeah, hey, I dated your aunt, and I'm going to date you, because she's old and not interesting. It, they, I don't know. Sometimes I wonder if they would have been better just, you know, something happened in the war, and Peggy gave her life to save, um, you know, uh, the, one of the Zemos had a rocket, and she had to jump on it or something, you oh, know? Yeah, that, that she well, wandered. Well, supposed to be dead for a long time anyways after, so, I mean. Yeah. That, that, that. Peggy wandered around after the war and amnesia yeah. <laughs> and all that was a was pretty rough. But it's just maybe she ran into the submariner. Weird to date. I mean, and I guess it happens where you date different family members, but it always seemed a little hanky to me. Like, yeah, there's a lot of people you could date. Okay. Well, I thought the original bit of it was funny, right? Like that, like who's this beautiful shield agent? And then it's the niece of the girl who was his love interest back in the war. And at first it like creeps him out. Like, it's like, Oh, Oh man. You know? And uh, like, that was a funny twist. Like you fall for a girl and it's the, you know, great grand niece of some lady that you knew. And all of a sudden you seem like you're a creepy old dude or something. Uh, I thought that was funny, a funny situation to put cap in. But then after that subsequent writers picked, up more of yeah, like romance <laughs> and then it went back kind of back and forth but i guess it all gets fixed in in this storyline so oh for sure no I'll, spoilers I'll, but i'll get uh, on i hope you're day. not attached to sharon carter because this is her final story so the crowd 
when Sharon Carter and the other S.H.I.E.L.D. agent are at this rally in Central Park of these neo-Nazis, the National Force, the crowd's there, but not to support it. The crowd's there protesting like it's Nazis in Skokie or something, right? And But after this large cross gets lit aflame, the crowd erupts in a riot, but not against National Force, against each other. Oh, it seems like a little bit of a mad bomb situation going on. Right. I was thinking hate monger is what it felt like. Yeah. Like another classic. But Sharon Carter. Or the psycho man. The other agent and Sharon are swept right up in it too, and they're right in the riot. And now they're missing. So dun dun dun. So maybe Sharon had some opinions, Steve, that she finally felt free to (laughs) express. Someone (laughs) finally understands me. So Cap vows to investigate while Peggy goes and gets bombed. And I don't mean like uh, pound a few beers and talk about the war with Nick Fury kind of get bombed. (laughs) I mean, she gets in her car and it blows up. But she miraculously survives. Well, yeah. I just love, I love Cap who was like, uh, take care of her boys. We were close a long time ago. He doesn't want them thinking that he's into older chicks or anything. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was was before. I I thought that was a little cruel. He didn't need to be like, oh, we... We, we were close. It was a long time ago, though, guys. Don't think I like them. You should have uh, seen how pretty she was. <laughs> <laughs> so when I mean, t- she's dying, Cap, like, have a little respect. Yeah, she doesn't look great on the cover of uh, 232. It, that's the issue that he hears the explosion and he races and he pulls her body from the wreckage and he takes out the National Force goons who attacked her. But before they can be arrested and questioned, each of them activates uh, like a suicide switch and they burst into flames, instantly incinerating themselves. So would you rather go down in flames like that or do the poison capsule in your tooth trick? Well, I'm glad to see the comics code of authority is fine with that. Yeah. <laughs> we we don't want a werewolf in a comic yeah, book, right. but go ahead hey, and Jonestown burn yourself happened. to death. <laughs> It actually, probably because of the Jonestown thing, that's why it wasn't a capsule, right? They probably came up with the other thing to make it not be like that. Anyway, Cap races home, and th- I love this whole sequence. He's like racing across midtown traffic on the vehicle roofs. That's fun. And Cap goes to work one last time as police officer Steve Rogers. <laughs> after... I liked him better as the uh, as a comic book artist. Well, that's that yeah, happens that, after this. That... That's so weird. It's it's after this arc, he'd switch focus from being more of this lawman as Cap, who was working for Shield, and as Steve working as a police officer, and be more of this freelance hero, spending more time with the Avengers and less time with Shield, and moves to a different spot and starts working as a commercial artist. So they really change his, um, you know, uh, lawman image uh, after and during this arc here cap roughs up a street informant (laughs) pretty badly who points him to morgan who's a harlem mob boss who was sam wilson the falcon's nemesis for quite a long time even though he hadn't been seen for the last six years it was in captain america 159 in december 1972 that he last popped up i think kevin may have hit on something this does have a very daredevil feel with cap shaking the guy down and then going yeah. to shake the mob boss by kicking well, in the door and everything. You, well, you know, the other book Roger McKenzie was writing, right? 
<laughs> it's true. He's, he was writing he's, Daredevil. <laughs> yeah. He, he, he's kind of underrated for like those Daredevil issues. Agreed. Cap goes to shake down Morgan, and one of Morgan's lieutenants bursts in, saying that national force is marching on Harlem. So they all mobilize. And National Force's mysterious grand director is seen laying on a couch, like doing psychotherapy Freudian style with a shadowy clinician who... He's obviously pulling the strings here, right? But who could it be? Hmm. I mean, he has one of those Red Skull smoking things going on. Those were always the bad guys. and If you have the cigarette holder... You're not a good guy. You need a cigar. Then you might be okay. That's right. The good guys only have cigars. 232 ends with Captain America on the street in Harlem, caught between National Force and a Harlem mob, and Sharon's with National Force, and she drank the Kool-Aid and is all in. No. So I had 233 as a kid also, Kevin. Bought off the rack when I was eight. And, I, yeah, it was, it's an awesome cover. Yeah. Confusing inside, though. <laughs> oh, yeah. So you look <laughs> at that cover and you're like, oh, I wonder what's going on there. Well, I was also like, the title is Crossfire. And I'm like, didn't we just cover his first appearance? I think that's Marvel 2-in-1, not <laughs> Captain America. <laughs> yeah, not that Crossfire. <laughs> Cap tries to prevent this brawl from happening, but it's inevitable. So both factions are fighting, and Cap's in the middle. Teeth are flying everywhere, Sal Buscema style. Can I, I, I have to fully admit, I'm not like a military hardware guy, but I do love the weird kind of Kirby guns that people yes. use. Sometimes they kind of look like real guns. Most of the time they look like weird tubes and levers and stuff. <laughs> the National Guard gets called in to break things up. And we get to see Cap getting testy again with the soldiers, right, Andrew? You like that? Yeah, I like... No, Don't push around Captain America, son. He's seen some things. He swats that dude's hand off his shoulder. The National Force members, though, that were caught, they do the suicide burn thing before Cap can even see if Sharon was amongst them. So he's like, oh, man. They're uh, really burning through their troops, eh, Steve? Yeah. (laughs) Uh I only want to get sent on the successful missions. (laughs) So Cap goes back to check on Peggy, recovering in the hospital. After another fun sequence of Cap, like, getting across town. But Peggy's gone. She was checked out of the hospital by Dr. Steve Rogers? Well, it's a pretty common name, Steve, in in their (laughs) defense. I mean, Steve Rogers, it's... Roger got to be one of the top ten popular last names. So switch locations and we get to see the Grand Director waiting for Cap. And his therapist is Dr. Faustus. Nice. And Faustus shows that really at his whim he can reduce the Director to like a ball of cowering prone flexion. The the old fetal position. The, I also think it's funny that uh, he, the doctor, like chain smokes. There is no scene yeah, 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 where yeah. he is not lighting up or smoke. Like he should really, you know, get his lungs checked out. I just felt I had trouble breathing reading every time he had a cigarette. 
Well, I think he cleared his out when he fell out of that plane last time. I was it maybe it was mind uh, gas coming out. It's a prop, prop cigarette. Oh, oh, the that's dust my, of death. That's my no prize. But so they're standing around waiting for Cap to figure it out. He's just got to look up Doctor Steve Rogers and find his office listing in, in the yellow pages. Right. That was Andrew. That was the old part of when they used to print out part of the internet on paper. <laughs> and hey, and uh, put it... look, he's America's soldier, not America's detective. Okay, Steve. <laughs> so <laughs> don't expect him to figure stuff out quickly. So I like this fine tradition of receptionists that are robots. <laughs> like there's a company out there selling these. Yeah, Cap arrives at the high rise offices of. Dr. Steve Rogers, and this, he encounters a series of traps, the first one being robot Sharon Carter nurse as a receptionist with a machine gun. It and looks it, like an old Tommy gun from like the 30s. or what. Yeah. Cap was familiar, I guess, with that well, gun. Well, well, Patty Hearst was in the news at the, around that, that <laughs> era, right, with, with the Tommy gun. Um, so he also, there's a sabotaged elevator car, and there's holograms of the Red Skull and Modoc, But he gets through them all. But all the while, he was taking in Faustus's mind gas. And by the time he reaches Faustus, the porterly doctor can just swat him away with one punch. Yeah, single-handed, not even the double-handed punch, Steve. And issue 233 ends with the Grand Director doffing his mask to reveal that he's Steve Rogers. What? Oh, I thought the art team just couldn't draw that many different faces. Thanks for clearing that up. Oh, no, I'm now, joking. <laughs> now, it wasn't until years later that the Red Skull would come pop out with like a clone of Steve Rogers's body. Uh, you know, uh, was that during Gruenwald's run around issue 350 and, and all that? So, you know, the only person we knew who looked like Steve Rogers when you were reading this, Kevin, when you got to that panel where you were like, oh, cool. You know, I, right I think it usually got confused because I remember that that New Mutants 100, and it's like, oh, Strife was revealed to be Cable, and you're like, oh, cool, Cable's infiltrated the the MLF, and I'm like, no, you idiots, it's a clone, <laughs> it's not the same guy. <laughs> I thought they'd already talked about 50s Cap, though. I mean, they don't yes. link the link now. But... No, right. And, yeah, well, it was issue 155 and 156 that was the famous thing that brought yeah. that established who the 50s, that there was a 50s Cap who was different and yeah. explained those stories. Because how could there be stories of commie fighting Cap in the 1950s if Cap was frozen at the end of the war and thought out in Avengers number four, right? So they... Yeah very cleverly and i as a kid it blew my mind and it made me love the whole fictional universe and fictional history thing so much as a kid that those and two apparently issues... it blew ed brubaker's mind too yeah right i liked i liked it as well because he was really tragic yeah you know the the classic hero who wanted to do the right thing and just did not end up in the right way yeah i thought those are that was like a great use of Fixing modern con- that was a great Roy Thomasing. Yeah, of something. and that they even cared enough, rather than just never mention it, right? Who just go on yeah. like they was like, no, we're going to explain away the fifties cap in this fun, fun way. Anyway, issue two thirty four opens with five pages of Cap walloping a bunch of 
armed Harlem mobsters while he's spewing national force type rhetoric. Uh oh. The somehow someone gave these guys the awesome Kirby weapons that yeah. they're all dealing with. And I'm like, boy, these street gangs are well armed. <laughs> At the end of walloping these uh Harlem uh gang members Cap spins his shield around for the cameras and it's got the National Force flaming swastika on it instead of the Star and Stripes. And it was kind of cool. If you go back and you look over the previous five pages, even though you were you just read them, you realize you never actually saw the face of the shield. So that was yeah. kind of cool. What I yeah, thought I was interesting is all the TV hidden... studio. Yeah. Like what? Like did So did they lure them to this? Were they actors? Like the whole thing opens up a crazy amount of questions when they pull back and you see all the cameras and the back is like a projected background and everything. Sorry, go on, Kevin. I just love that little tidbit. <laughs> I just wanted to get my stupid joke in there about that recent storyline. I'm like, who knew that Cap Shield has all this hidden history, especially here too. <laughs> Can I, you know, one of the, that storyline, current storyline finally finished up and one of the big, like, MacGuffin or Deus Ex Monica things, Machina things that they had at the end was that like there are information chips like in the shield and these two spots on the shield, right? And I'm like, and they've been there since the beginning. I'm like, how many times has that shield been recreated like on <laughs> Asgard and then re-enchanted and put back together and like, don't give me this that this microchips on the shield that have been there planted there that cap doesn't hadn't known like you know come on and then it was in the ocean for a while please please (laughs) anyway so uh as we said roger mckenzie was the writer on daredevil 2 although not for long because frank miller at this time had just started as the penciler and obviously he would take over as the writer on that book You, you might be familiar with his run Daredevil hears about the news story of Cap with the swastika shield and decides to investigate. He tracks down National Force and is confronted by Faustus and uh, I'm just going to call him Hydra Cap. I I love the brief encapsulation to place you in Daredevil's firmly in his romance comics route with everyone pining for each other and everything. What I was less thrilled with is you know, like they're making all the fat jokes about Foggy, and I'm like, I don't even think he looks that fat, to be honest with you. That's like, <laughs> 70s fat, not like today fat. They'd make him some huge, you know, big guy. And I'm like, he, yeah, he's a bigger guy, but he's not that fat yeah. for your little snide comment, no, Matt. We, we've lowered the standards, and that's totally acceptable now, what he looks like. I'm yeah, kidding. I'm like, I don't like, like, uh, like your little cracks there, Matt. That's I don't within, think Foggy makes cracks about you. That's within normal limits in, by today's standards. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I want to. I just saying, I want a fat Foggy. If you're going to make him fat, Steve. So Faustus six Hydra Cap on Daredevil, and uh, they fight for a few pages. Well, you got to have the requisite number of uh, action scenes in your comic, Steve. Daredevil gets Cap's shield covered in oil that acts as a solvent and removes the offensive imagery off Cap's shield, and seeing his old shield, good old friend, old chum, it snaps Cap right out of it. 
Oh, I thought it was the gas fumes. <laughs> oh, it could be that it. too. So now Cap and Daredevil have to face the National Force together. And I had 235 and 236, the last two issues here, as a kid also. And these were the issues that I really enjoyed a lot as a youth and later rereading them as a young teen. 235 is one big chase scene. Faustus's National Force goons hit the oil-covered room with flamethrowers. And then they escape as our heroes are trapped in an inferno. Yeah, it's a fun era of generally super compressed comics, but then you'll have a just one and a half comics that's all chasing. Yeah, <laughs> like the balance of it was because I always think of these as like, oh, a million things happen in the comics, and normally that's true, except when they want to do something like this, where this whole thing goes on for quite a while the whole chase and yeah. tracking them down i mean there's some close calls and there's some tight maneuvering but cap and daredevil escape from the flames and a collapsing roof with a water tower on top which fun fact frank miller actually stepped in and drew the water tower and he draws all water towers that's that's why he gets the little creative team credit at the beginning that he's the water tower consultant. And if you look at the picture <laughs> with the water tower on the building, like the building is so sparsely detailed and inked, and then the water tower's all like detailed and everything. It's pretty funny. It really stands out once you, uh, you know, uh, have been exposed to the rubric. Yeah, and it has a very seventies like they go through this whole thing about how cap really burns his hand super bad and it'll take a while to heal. Never references it again. <laughs> <laughs> Faustus uses his cap clone to gain entry to a nearby air show. And they load all their gear onto this giant blimp. Cap and daredevil arrive on scene and they engage the national force, but Faustus and the grand director have Peggy Carter hostage. They're the ones, you know, they took her from the hospital and our heroes have to stand down while they lift off and make their escape yet again. But Cap has an idea. He and Daredevil board an old, like, World War I-era two-man biplane, like with the open cockpits, one in front of the other, and Cap manages a takeoff. But two National Force goons steal two other biplanes, and then they chase after them. Right? How I love that they keep fun. keep them fueled up. That's yeah. the important part with and, your and live, antique aircraft and live ammo. Right at the air show. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta so, you gotta make it fun for the kids. Bring the whole family, Steve. We're gonna light up some uh, targets or whatever at the air show. Well, Cap does one of those tricky maneuvers and gets the two planes to crash into each other, but not before taking some shots to their fuselage. So. Now they're in a smoking, partially disabled antique plane that's losing power. And Cap's next idea is to have Daredevil fly the plane. Right. Oh, yeah. Hard stop, right? <laughs> There's nothing that's going to go wrong there. <laughs> well, hey, they use radar to fly, fly planes all the time. Yeah. The radar's got to hit something. How far does <laughs> Daredevil's radar go? Like... So Daredevil takes the controls reluctantly, mind you. He knows. He knows it's a bad idea. And Cap climbs out on the wing. And then when they're over the blimp, 
Capel jump, right? But be it turbulence or a blind pilot or a little of both, Cap falls off early, and as the issue ends, Daredevil's yelling out, Oh my god, he's gonna miss the dirigible! <laughs> this is so old-timey Cap. We have biplanes, a dirigible, Nazis. <laughs> like It feels like they're like, Hey, Cap, you should be right at home. I also want to give credit to... I've goofed on Jim Shooter quite a bit for his recapping and restating everything, but I thought they did a real nice job yes. bringing us up. Like it's a three quarter page. They don't, it's not, I'm the best at what I, you know, the kind of thing we lampoon where the characters repeat their stories and backstories. It was just a nice little subtle, bring you up to speed in the middle of the comic in case you missed the previous issue type of thing. Well done. Cause we've read some stuff in the earlier seventies where, who knows? Like, if you just picked up a random issue, yeah. you got no idea what's going well, on. This is a it. this is a six issue arc too, right? So, like, we're four, five issues into it. You, you you need to catch people up. I agree. And saying that, like, it's so capish. I, I love the Keith Polar Joe Sinnott cover to two thirty six. Caps figure, the line work and the background coloring of Faustus with the black blimp in the back and the Statue of Liberty. I mean, that's a great cover. Love that cover. Yeah, my only concern is it looks like the Statue of Liberty is about to light up that blimp, Steve. Yeah, <laughs> all the humanity. <laughs> well, 236 opens with Cap in this free fall. But, you know, if he just maneuvers just right and uses his shield to maximize his aerodynamics, he still misses the blimp. And <laughs> it, the scene is paced out and drawn wonderfully it's like wily e. coyote almost making it across the canyon right and he just comes up short like missed it by that much daredevil tries to get close to save him with the plane but the, the old plane craps out and he's basically dead in the air but close enough to throw cap his billy club <laughs> Yeah, this whole sequence felt like you would see it in a James Bond movie or something. Yeah. You know, like you think they're going to do it. They miss that. You think they're going to get it again and they miss it again and have to go to like plan C or plan D to just survive. So Cap falls down into the city, but fires off the Billy Club's tow line and catches a like a flagpole or something and breaks his fall just enough to make up the difference with his impact absorbing shield, you know, and survives. But it's crazy. And Daredevil, Daredevil dies survives. running the plane into a building. <laughs> yeah. I mean, no, he survives. He crashes on the docks. He tried to make it to the water, but he doesn't make it either. Crashes on the docks, but he either jumps free or is thrown free and lands in the water. I think he's thrown free. It's I'm the... pretty sure he's got a future as an airline pilot. By the way. The <laughs> open cockpit there. He probably was thrown free. So meanwhile, aboard Faustus's airship, he explains everything to captured Peggy and to us readers he's got vats of mind gas that he's going to pump out over the city from the blimp he also explains how after captain america learned and defeated the 1950s cap and bucky in that classic captain america 155 and 156 from 1972 cap and bucky were sent to a hospital type facility that faustus covertly ran and so he brainwashed the 50s cap and had him shoot Bucky dead. 
But, uh, you know, don't worry, folks. Jack Monroe would come back four years later as the new Nomad during J.M. DeMatteis and Mike Zeck's run in issue 281. But here, pow, dead. Hey, death is permanent in comics, Steve. That's the (laughs) one thing we know. And hearing the story of their past makes the Grand Director drop to the floor again in, in his favorite fetal position there. And it's just as Cap appears. Cap borrowed a Quinjet, I say borrowed in air quotes, and had Daredevil fly it. I mean, let's face it, the, these Quinjets probably practically fly themselves. Daredevil flies it over the blimp, and this time Cap makes the jump. And he yeah, break- you'd kind of think they should have done that the first time <laughs> instead of the biplane. If they were able to find the blimp so easy, it seems like... A Quinjet's quite a bit faster. Yeah, but. maybe the biplane was the quicker way to get to Avengers Mansion. Like, Cat <laughs> <laughs> uh, makes the jump. He breaks inside and confronts Faustus, and you know wants to save Peggy. And Faustus yells to the Grand Director, "Do something!" So he does. He hits his kill switch and incinerates himself. And that's the oh. end of the fifties, Cap. So maybe Faustus could have been more supportive is all I was saying. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't seem to be a very good psychiatrist or psychologist. Yeah, you or didn't whatever. pay your last bill. Cap fights his way through what seems like the entire National Four squad and stops Faustus mid process, or as Kevin would say, process. Yes. While he's trying to release the gas over the city. Oh, and the Grand Director's fiery death caused a fire in the blimp, and it crashes into the harbor. (laughs) But Daredevil's there with his telescoping billy club to pull them out of the drink and get them aboard the floating Quinjet. Man, you definitely don't want to go swimming. That river has a bunch of mine gas canisters (laughs) and a burned-out dirigible in it. There's some pollution issues. And there, even though that's the conclusion of this story, there are a few epilogue pages of aftermath at the start of Cap 237, with Cap giving a press conference explaining that he was mind-controlled by Faustus. But more importantly, a reporter takes him aside and shows him video footage from the Harlem National Force riots, and Cap is able to see and unfortunately confirm that, yeah, Sharon Carter incinerated herself as a mind-controlled agent of national force. She's dead, Jim. Well, I know whenever I see something on a videotape, it's 100% happened. (laughs) But done in a characteristic way to be like, wait a second. I thought this was pretty understated, though, for a 70s comic. You know, they don't have a lot of dialogue. They don't let the images do the heavy lifting. I liked it. And like you said before, Kevin, she'd stay dead for 15 years. Yeah. Until the first Wade Garney run in in issue 445. But I think killing her off was part of this whole separation from S.H.I.E.L.D. thing. and, And separating Cap from being an enforcer of the law. You know, he quits S.H.I.E.L.D. He loses Sharon, who was an important connection to S.H.I.E.L.D. He moves to Brooklyn. He leaves the police force. He starts being a commercial artist at the new apartment in 
uh, Brooklyn, he develops Steve Rogers more as a person, right? With the whole supporting cast of the people who lived in the building, Artie and the, the fi- other firefighter guy, and meets his new love interest in Bernie Rosenthal. And Stern and Byrne were on deck and right around the corner. Come on, Kevin, how's that for a meaningful Fausta story, right? It kills off Sharon Carter and both the brings back and kills off the 50s Cap and Bucky who hadn't been around for uh, seven years. Yeah, that's pretty decent. And so much of it had to be undone, right? Yeah. Like over time, the, the 50s Bucky comes back in 281 in 1983. Sharon Carter comes back in 445 in 1995. And the 50s cap comes back in Brubaker's 2005 series in a storyline that now, I mean, isn't it obvious? It was totally not just a sequel, but also a love letter to this storyline, because in very in a bunch of ways, it really mimicked it. It was cool. just a flesh wound, Steve. <laughs> just a flesh wound. But I thought it was cool when they when that Brubaker run happened and they went to this whole Faustus thing and they included the fifties cap again and brought him back. I just thought that was that made that made me smile because it was you know a modern uh, adult sensibility, adult complexity type story being told, but it had some of those beats and again was this obvious love letter to this ridiculous old storyline from when I was eight years old. <laughs> but this is why I think Faustus is a decent enough member of Cap's uh, rogues gallery because Cap is driven by his ideals, his character, right? And Faustus has the ability to pick away at that or compromise it right or mess with the people around him who are more vulnerable than he is so uh he is a bit of a silly villain and uh they don't always use him to the best uh potential especially when he's used with other characters like that marvel team up with mr fantastic and all that was a little ridiculous but this storyline and you know, his first storyline, the, the 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 Lee Kirby stuff right after uh, 100 is like 106 or something like that, 107 um, of Cap. Uh, that, this storyline, and the Brubaker one, I, I think are really the Faustus stories. Yeah, you just have to figure out what to do with him since he's one of these guys wearing a suit. So... <laughs> Also had to be hard under Joe Q with the smoking thing. Like that's a pretty big part of his identity. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. It's but, just gas. But I think that's why he works good with Captain America versus other heroes because of that whole he's a guy in a suit. Because Cap can have a mastermind manipulator person. Like sometimes the scroll. Well, even the Red Skull doesn't get his hands dirty, right? And he's working from a yeah. distance, or especially when he was. Uh, in the mind of that Russian oligarch guy or whatever too, you know, that, uh, yeah, it, it fits yeah, in that it, profile. If you, all your villains aren't suit guys, then you can have a few suit guys, but if all your guys are already like that, you need something else. And Cap's not above punching a guy in a suit. I always appreciated <laughs> that. 
A fat hey, you guy. Know, a fat guy with glasses. Of, <laughs> yeah, they got Kingpin. There's lots of suit guys that are pretty classic characters out there. And I and I like a lot of suit guys and guys that aren't super powered, but sometimes it's like if that's all there is, then you're just like, oh, yeah. <laughs> all right, that's Dr. Faustus. Enough, enough of you. Let's do some recent reads. It's a long summer. You didn't think we had time for all of our recent reads last episode, did you? I mean, we stopped short of the Hellfire Club gala for Pete Rasputin's sake. So we got more. And since I mentioned the elephant in the room, the Hellfire Gala, uh, the X-Men book since last episode <laughs> took a big uh, transition. Um, um, with yeah, that, with that... I mean, um, wow, I, I've seen every reaction to, uh, to this story, and I have quite a few reactions myself. I feel like it could feel like a whole episode just speculating and <laughs> trying to weed out stuff and figure everything out. The catalyst or the linchpin to the transformation of the status quo for the X-Men was this year's Hellfire Gala, written by Jerry Dugan with a variety of artists, including Adam Kubert and Russell Dowderman and Matteo Lali. But it, it, I mean, it's, it all comes crashing down. There's no other way to say it. Uh, I'm, I'm trying not to think of it as Avengers disassembled since I didn't particularly enjoy that story. Yeah. But there's like some similar, sure. I think wonky storytelling elements where I, it's, it's it seems like we 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 know where point B is, and we start at point A, and we got to get there, and sometimes it doesn't entirely connect for me. Or it seems like the story has a very limited span, but we'll get to that. And it has that uh, little bit of that, like, Dark Rain flavor, too, of, like, Orcus wins, right? There, That's the organization made up of the... Um... The brain trust of, uh, you know, uh, the the big bad guys, right? Um, and they finally make their move against the mutants, and now they're in control, and the Sentinels are back, and um, this is all problematic. I The thing that I thought was the um, cleverest touch actually involves a character that I really have never cared for and never really understood why he is is kept around and what's and I, even what his power set is and everything like that just because he doesn't has never really interested me but now he actually makes sense is that exodus character you know uh, that dude well, he he's a peak 90s character yeah so i mean that that's I, I feel like that's kind of the issue sometimes too. But, but they, yeah, I think he he's in this era he's worked pretty well as a guy that needs someone to like worship or are these are he's trying to save someone or do something but alone he's nothing. 
but like why Exodus, right? Like, what do you think of in, with Exodus with the, you know, you think of like the Jews is go, from the Pharaoh and that kind of a thing. Yeah. And I now, mean, they're nailing that, 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 that uh, pretty hard, aren't they? Yeah. They end up with all of the mutants in the desert with like no, which not knowing which way to go. And Exodus steps up and he's like, Ooh, Ooh, this is my move. <laughs> and he's like, yes. all of a sudden he's a leader and he's like, let's go this way with the sun behind him like a halo. And it's like, oh my gosh, this character makes sense for the first freaking time <laughs> in 30 <laughs> years or whatever. Um, and I don't even like the guy, but I thought that was a clever touch. So you guys weren't talking about the metal band Exodus? The <laughs> oh, no. Move, movement of Ja People. I wasn't talking about that either. <laughs> But so the fallout because of this whole Orcus um, organization winning and Jerry Dugan being the writer of the Hellfire Gala, this spills over into the Iron Man book that Dugan is writing, the latest uh, volume of Iron Man. And he keeps the book pretty tied to the X books because Orcus also takes over all of Stark's assets, including his armor and the Iron Man armor and all this stuff. And he builds Stark Sentinels, which then get used at the Hellfire Gala. And it really mirrors the X-Books with everything that Tony's built also burning down. And and the arts by John Frigiri and Andrea DeVito. I like the look of the book, particularly because they brought back the... Um, little stupid lines underneath Iron Man's eye slots that are like little <laughs> shadows that are remind me totally of the John Romita Jr. Bob Wycheck, uh art era. Um, but as soon as he is wearing that armor and they put those little lines on, I'm like, all right, that looks really cool. It looks cool in every panel. It's funny how something's so little. <laughs> but Tony has to take down his own company with very limited assets and resources and support but that's what he's set out to do and and now the mutants are hit too and uh it kind of in some way it's it's partially tony's fault for letting them get a hold of all of that uh technology and stuff oh steve tony's technology never gets in the wrong hands (laughs) (laughs) i was gonna be like again tony all right, one more X-Book, though, written by Jerry Dugan, and that's the regular X-Men title, Adjectiveless, issue 25, with art by Stefano Caselli, and we get to see what's left of the X-Men who are in hiding. And Yeah. And it's almost like a post-apocalyptic, you know, like a Dark Reign type of situation. Uh, there's some kind of grotesque moments, like with... Uh, Scott Summers being uh, tortured by Sinister with his eyelids sewn shut and everything. Yeah, I'm like, why is he still alive? Like, it just, some of the things, like, baffle me. I'm like, maybe it'll be revealed. But I'm like, I don't know. After they had this whole bit of, like, anytime we find a mutant, and I'm like, so that's just for this story. Because that doesn't seem like a sustainable element that they could continue on forever because something's going to happen and then they like it's not gonna it's just not gonna work out 
besides trying to set up what this new status quo is and dealing with the aftermath of the Hellfire Gala, this issue 25 of the X-Men mostly focuses on the transformation of Kitty Pryde into uh, Shadowcat again and her kind of accepting being the weapon that uh, the samurai master Ogun trained her to be. And it kind of shows what broke her, that moment that she got... Uh, was in a life-or-death situation, them or us, with a squad of Orcus commandos, and she went wild and uh, mopped the floor with them. Yeah, I'm not sure if I saw if I see past the marketing, or if, or if I'm so gullible to think that this like gritty grim thing is like the status quo. I keep on saying this isn't the status quo though. Everyone, and then people are like, everything's gone. And I'm like, but it's not really gone. So, I mean, I, I'm going to seem like a fool maybe in a few months or whatever, but for me, it seems like this, this is a time limited thing and this isn't the status quo, but we'll see. Uh, dark rain didn't last forever either. I mean, that is true. But I will say it was the status quo for a little while. <laughs> That's what I mean. Like, if it goes on for a year, I'm like, I'm going to be like, I, I was wrong. Like, well, they, I totally bought the hype and I couldn't tell the difference. Well, they got new titles starting out, out of this quote-unquote new status quo. So that makes me think that it's at least going to be around for six months or close to a year. Like, like uh, uh, the uh, Astonishing Iceman, right? Iceman... Is uh, written by Steve Orlando, uh, art by Vincenzo Caratu, and he's on the run from Orcus, doing heroic public deeds and escaping to like an ice castle that he has, like a fortress of solitude. But it's he's got somebody there, so it's not quite solitude in yeah. uh, in Antarctica. Um, and he but kiss- I feel like it could go as short as these limited series are going. And then they move into whatever's next. Like yeah, whether we enough. move backwards or forwards is, you know, anyone's guess. Uh, last comment about Iceman. Uh, he kisses a lot of guys along the way in his adventures. <laughs> <laughs> like if they, if that was a, you know, a hero, uh, you know, take, um, I don't know, take Captain America and he goes and saves some girl and then grabs her and sweeps her off her feet and like bends her over and kisses her in the middle of the like battlefield um wouldn't people be saying that's like that's not right that kind of takes you out of the story it's a weird well that's kind of what the Iceman does but it's to you know hit you over the head with the fact that he's gay and uh i just thought it was a little too a little too much too much. Steve, you don't like the classic where Spider-Man kisses Jean Grey in the team-up issue where he slides oh, past yeah. the wall. That I liked, and he paid for that. <laughs> anyway, so... The old days when he's... I feel like Nightcrawler probably got away with it, too, a bunch of times. Yeah, right? Uh, all he's left is with the... Leaves you with that little stink of brimstone. All right, who's no got something else? To be around with that brimstone's around. <laughs> Enough about me and the Xbox. What do you got? I got some manga. Manga, but this is Marvel I... noise. This is Marvel noise. 
Yes. <laughs> yes. It's it's so weird. Like Marvel's not doing well, right? Late nineties there. And then they're like, hey, why don't we import the Spider-Man manga? And I'm just like I think I covered like the first issue on a previous episode. I remember. And then I'm like, I gotta get more of these. And now I have more of them. So it's it's still weird that the tra- one of the translators is C.B. Sabolsky. <laughs> Was he using his real name or is this Akira whatever? Yeah, this is pre-Akira. There, there's post-Akira, but this is pre-Akira. Yeah, because he was the that special project guy, right? For a while. I don't know what he is at this point. I guess maybe he's 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 like translator and trying to work into talent scout. I don't really know. It's it's kind of a weird nebulous situation. Oh, I also well, like never how spotted they my talent here guy. for the Marvel Zone. It's like the the website they advertise for is marvelzone.com, not even marvel.com. But on AOL, they're Marvel. <laughs> so strange. Anyhow, yeah, these these are oversized issues, but it's like two ninety nine US and four twenty Canadian. I'm like four twenty. Ooh. <laughs> they knew what they were doing. I mean, I guess so. I mean, it is all in black and white, but you can tell like every three issues. Like that must have been a color or like painted section because you get that. Oh, it has a better definition. It's not just the flat right. cartooning. You get some like gray tones. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it, it, I always like how they like cheap out on that. It's like, ah, oh, we don't want to put that in there. <laughs> not for the Americans. We get black and white. And who, who would you think? So we, we had like electro, then you have a lizard. Who do you think the third villain would be? Doc usually? Ock. Doc Ock, issue three. The kangaroo. Oh. So it seems to be like uh, about three issues of story. And then they like they do a new villain. And it's like much like the movies. Like you're like, oh, we're never going to use this villain again. So then they're like dying horrible deaths or something. But it's not it's not like you can really. Like sometimes they tell you he died, but you didn't see he died. I don't know. It's it's very strange because and then I'm like. So are they going to really bring him back? Like, it, it's not like an on-panel. He'll just be talking, and they'll be like, oh, man, and you see him beat him up and then everything. And then, like, later on, some character mentions, oh, he's dead. And I'm like, what? We didn't see him die. Are you reading it in the right order? You know it's manga, right? <laughs> <laughs> they keep bringing no, I, everyone back to life, yeah, Steve. Geez, like... it, it moves fast, so there are moments where I'm like, if you would tell me some panels or pages they're missing from this, I would believe you. There's also weird pages where they'll only have like two or three panels on the page, and I'll be like, what's the deal here? Uh, Americans, you don't need all the panels. You don't need all the pages. You don't need the color. <laughs> like, they must have flipped it. But then I'm like, was the other half of the page like an advertisement or something? Probably. I don't know. It's kind of strange. But anyways, the, the first Electro thing is is, is sort of like um, our Peter Parker, who isn't Peter Parker in here. And then I guess our Mary Jane, who isn't Mary Jane, but it's like his <laughs> pen pal. It's like, oh, my brother's gone missing. And we got to find out what he's been up to. And he's had like all these jobs trying to make all this money and everything. And I'm like, it's pretty easy to guess like 
what's going on here once you read this story. But it's like every Spider-Man villain in here, it's like people are like, oh, that must be a cyborg or that must be a robot. And I'm like, what is it? Why why don't you like they don't think it's like, oh, someone could never be a Spider-Man or like an electric guy like that must be a robot. Which I think is is very funny. (laughs) And then you have like the version of. uh, J. Jonah Jameson. So he's just like, oh, we can sell all these papers if we if if we get he's he's kind of like creating like Spider-Man's around, but he's not like doing a lot of stuff. And it's like maybe he'll get discouraged and be like, ah, oh, everyone hates me. I'm not gonna be Spider-Man anymore. But then Jameson has this thing. Our Jameson and this Jameson, anyways. I mean, it's 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 almost like like the Dave the Bugle type of thing. It's like the oh, it's a Joho paper, and I'm like, well, it is a J, <laughs> and he is is a guy that's smoking, and there are bits in here where Spider Man will take like a cigar out of the, out of his mouth and everything. I'm like, he's doing that to people. Smoking. I mean, there's bits. Yeah, surprisingly, they can smoke in here, but I mean, probably they probably wouldn't change that, right? Because Japan, you know, smoking smoking is still cool. But it's so weird that James is like, he's like, oh, I'm going to give a $100,000 reward for the capture of Electro. It'll be a challenge, like be a superhero. And they're like, oh, no one's going to ever like reclaim this money because no one can beat Electro. There is no like super people around. And then that encourages our like Peter Parker like character to be like, oh, yeah, I can I can pull this off. But then when he collects that money it just it's like jameson's just like oh what can i what can i do i'm like i gotta get the circulation of our newspaper to go up even higher now because i had to give away a hundred thousand (laughs) dollars so then he's just like i know i can since that spider-man's out there and ruined that for me i'm gonna say he's a menace and i'm like oh here we go we get around to it (laughs) Like that is that is such a a weird thing that he's almost like getting around to like creating his own villains type of type of thing. And we get to the lizard, which is a pretty brutal sequence by issue four. And I thought this might be something that that inspired the the Craven movie that's coming up because I, like this guy is surrounded by like all these lizards, and I'm like, oh no. Don't tell me some lizard blood or some weird thing is going to go into this guy and he's going to become the lizard. Because it, it seems very much like he's going to be eaten and everything. And you hear some yelling and everything. And you're like, oh, the lizards got him. But then he's on a plane back to Japan and everything. Snapping necks and everything. And then you, this, the explanation isn't a whole lot better. Because he's like he fought off these lizards, used all these sub, sub, uh, survival skills and everything, and at some point he I don't know he just sort of found himself changing into a lizard, kind of vague. <laughs> but anyways, he's he, it's all these stories where it's like some like those early Spider-Man stories, like where it's like oh you created this invention and everything, but you like you could have like maybe sold that. 
invention and made all this money or you got like million dollar tech but then you're robbing a bank it's like someone's is always motivated by something it's like oh no one believed my invention was good so like the lizards out there destroying this uh company with all that's making all these like kind of life-saving uh future drugs some of them were just accidents how's the sandman and electro supposed to monetize that as inventions i mean yeah the vulture i give you that okay <laughs> what about the beetle yeah the beetle's a torch villain <laughs> okay <laughs> so it's funny that they think the the lizard is just like some monster like guy but then like they have like all these police officers guarding like all these drug plants and then some like regular guy walks in and then once he's past the guards it's like he transforms into the lizard and they're like oh no he must be a guy not a robot i thought the competition said a robot after me so it's just it's and then he's like kidnapping people and they're like okay this lizard guy is an actual guy it's just not some mindless monster type of guy so that's kind of fun and then the, for the third arc here, you have the kangaroo, who's like a foreigner in Japan, but he's like a wrestler. Hmm. But I, he can jump. I mean, that's kind of the kangaroo's thing, right? He just, you just accept that he kind of jumps and stuff like that. And he's just, even though he's sort of like a regular guy, yeah, basically. If you're a kangaroo, you got to jump. You, you, you can't, <laughs> you can't just name. box. You can't. <laughs> Can't just be all about the boxing. And then it leads to another one of those classic things with Spider-Man where he's just like, he sees people fighting and then he figures he knows who the good guys and the bad guys are. And it's like, oh, they're all beating up on the kangaroo. But it's actually the kangaroo being crazy, like bashing his head into everyone. It's like the other guy's blood is on him, but they think all these guys are beating him up. Oy. Yeah, I know. So it's like a whole a whole deal like that. So I mean, I I think it's f kind of funny that he's the third villain and everything. I mean, I think the series went, let's say, like thirty two issues. It went pretty long. Like I don't know how they had sales. That I guess just because it's Spider Man, but I like never saw this on the shelves. I'm like, how many stores would even have had this? Like they must have done the whole run. Like that is just insane. So I don't know how much of this I'll be able to get. But I would like to get the whole run. Because I, I, what are the odds this is going to be reprinted? I mean, I guess there's a chance. One of the first comics, Spider-Man comics I remember reading was the uh, number 126. My dentist had a copy. And my dentist always had Spider-Man. He had one of the prowler and big wheel and that yeah. era of, oh yeah oh nice those, those are early so i always liked the kangaroo because you know when you're a little kid and you're like whoa it looks so cool he's on the cover like kicking spider-man and you think it's really a badass and everything and then you know you get older and you're like okay maybe the kangaroo wasn't the greatest villain ever but as a little kid he caught my attention i mean i think he's better than the grizzly yeah. Well, I just, I think it's, I don't know about that. I think it was just being a kid. I wish, well, for me, I wish, I just feel like his outfit was pretty uninspired. Yeah. It was like, 
you know, the face was uncovered, which was okay. But he had like kind of shocker things on his arms and then just like a a vest and pants. Like it was not, again, not the greatest, great for a little kid, but, you know, maybe tool him up a little bit more. Give him a tail or something. I don't know. I mean, he's not the Gibbon. Gibbon's pretty low. I mean, certainly the the big rig guy, the, the big guy, Razorback, was <laughs> oh, another one as a kid. And Big Wheel and I like the big Racer. Wheel. Yeah, when I was a kid, those guys at least are crazy looking. Yeah, that's and why. That big Wheel Rocket Razor one was another one my dentist had. I always wonder, man, what happened to all them comics my dentist had? <laughs> Probably pretty well beat up. This kind of made me want to go re- reread the first appearance of the kangaroo and see how much is there. Not that this, like, this is very loose. Like, it, like it doesn't really have a lot of like experiment moments because they're like, oh, well, we'll just recreate everything. Like, power, responsibility, ah, this is have them make a costume and stuff like that. It's, it's very, very out there, but enjoyable. Andrew, you're on a roll. What have you been reading? Well, when you said recent read, Steve, is 1947 recent enough? Wow. Have you read it recently? (laughs) I like uh, looking at strange stuff on the Unlimited because it's kind of fun to just go and grab random stuff. So I try and go for more extremes because a lot of the time, if you just pick something, well, it's in the part 17 of... 342 or whatever but i saw they had one issue of blonde phantom blonde phantom number 17 and i'm like that's a comic i'm never going to own i can safely say (laughs) that i mean if someone gave it to me i'd be happy but what those comics cost if you're a regular person first of all they're pretty thrashed up you know well maybe you can get a point five expensive even then i bet you that'd be like 150 bucks or something there just aren't that many of them, and they're cool. But what yeah. was weird is I click on Blonde Phantom, and I'm like, okay, brace yourself, Andy. You know these 40s comics have some questionable stuff. It's not. It's only there. It turned into a Super Steve segment because it's just the Submariner backup in it. <laughs> the case of the Deep Sea Swindle, which I like. Bill Everett, Submariner. You know, the classic triangle head Submariner. Yeah. Yeah. Which everyone digs, because when you first see it, you're like, whoa, that is crazy. Unless you grew up with it. But it's got Namora and Betty Dean, his regular human love interest, and his non-human love interest. And what I like is, I'm not super... Like I said, this Golden Age stuff, not easy to come across. You can get reprints and everything, but I'm not drowning in it. I also don't... I can't read a ton of it. The whole... It feels pretty repetitive after a while but this was a good short little 10 pager on the unlimited about the submariner's gonna work uh guiding the boat that's carrying the gold and then the ladies have the paperwork on the accompanying ship and they get robbed but what i didn't know is that the submariner has like a a shirt a black shirt with a big yellow s on it and i've never seen that like when he does his fights and everything, he's in his his trunks like he should be. But there's a bunch of scenes where he's talking to the. He's wearing a trench coat and he has a black shirt with an S on it. So weird. 
And Namora has an N on her belt. That uh, makes I sense. was like, yeah, but I was like, S for Submariner, S for Superman. The thing I love <laughs> about these ones is all like the toadies look like creepy weirdos. You know, like they have pin heads or like yes. giant noses. That's or Everett. Head. <laughs> That's Bill Everett for you right there. I love it. Like no one's like, oh, I wonder if this character is a good guy or not. <laughs> yeah, he was very um, Jack Davisy in that aspect yeah. where he would do a lot of really different expressive faces. Yeah, Did great. They have like the crazy oceans where it's like all purpley and all, all the lines and everything. Yeah, the colors are a little wet, but this is a restore. Like I got no idea on the original. Obviously, like I said, I'm not. Yeah. I, I would love to look at original, but uh, that's not happening. But I imagine it would be really muddy. One of these, one of the goons has his whole mouth is open and he only has five giant teeth. <laughs> yeah, the, they need to bring back the black t shirt with the S on it for Submariner. But yeah, when the fight comes, he gets into his trunks and sticks it to the bad guys and they trick them by pretending they have another set of plans. You know, it's a golden age backup story, it's not a rocket science. They do kill the guy that's the the mastermind behind it, who's this fat guy with these like really tiny little round sunglasses on. Kind of so, not physically, but the glasses and everything gave me a bit of a strong guy vibe, sort of. But he's you know has the not the the fat physique and everything. Yeah, just a fun. I really was sad I didn't get the blonde phantom character though. I think we last talked about her with the She-Hulk when they brought her back. Then. Right, right. But it's just not a character. Like I said, this Golden Age stuff, I like. this is probably the best amount, like a single issue or something that treats me good. I'm never going to get it. I hope they put more of that stuff up there because this is the type of stuff. I don't know where you, I mean, I guess, Kevin, you're a comic book dealer. You probably flog a lot of Golden Age stuff. <laughs> oh, it seems like a pretty limited <laughs> Like there are guys that do it, but it's not like every every booth at the comic show has golden age stuff in it, you know. Yeah, I feel like you need to go to like San Diego Comic Con or some high priced event to see a lot of uh, golden age books. Because I know some people moved into golden age books when uh, the market sort of went down. They're like, oh, our money's safe in golden age books. Well, the other thing is, with Golden Age, I see a lot of, like, Batman or Superman, but it's rare to see, you know, there were so many comics back then, and I, and I'm not a Golden Age guy, but I just, you just don't see, like, the other random billions of issues that were coming out in the 40s. I mean, that's a high point of comic books, the 40s, so. Yeah, yeah, maybe you see some Fawcett and maybe some EC. I I almost never see EC. I would love to see those old pre-code horror books and be or war books. Those would be great. I do feel like I see some uh, uh, Mickey Mouse, Walt Disney stuff. Okay. Sometimes you can get the older stuff that way. But maybe that's also because of Southern California. I don't know. Yeah. But my suggestion is, if you have unlimited, check it out. Find those old weird, goofy comics. They're really fun. And Bill Everett's great. I remember him even as a kid. I always liked his stuff. You know, we were on that weird time, Steve, when we, I didn't realize that those guys had been drawing comics forever. 
you know, to me, it was just comic books. And then you, at some point you find out, oh yeah, he was actually drawing comics back in the forties. And you're like, what? (laughs) But he just drew a, you know, a comic today. It's weird how, when I was a kid, I thought, I don't know. I guess I thought at age 50, you evaporate or something. (laughs) I don't know. It's Logan's run. Yeah. Now I'm old enough to get retired or whatever they say in Logan's run. I checked out a couple of one shots. One of them uh, was Blade. A new Blade one shot written by Brian Hill with art by Elena Casagrande. Isn't this the ongoing? Is it? Or am I mistaken? Oh, you're right. It is an ongoing. Yeah. Because it does leave with a um, Blade had his status quo has been he's like the um, sheriff of Vampireville, right? Yeah. In your defense, there has been some Blade one shots and stuff this year. Well, here... yeah, I was reading that Daughter of the Blade one too. Yeah, that was a mini, right? I don't think that's wrapped yeah. up. Yeah, I don't think it? that's. Uh, I don't think I've. I haven't. I don't know. I, I haven't so. caught up on my recent recent. Reads. <laughs> I'm reading old recent reads. This one's pretty easy to get into. Blade gets asked to protect a hunted, seemingly innocent girl from some mystical ninja swordsman guy who's tracking her. And Blade saves her, but she turns out to be a big bad, like on the scale of Lilith. And now he's got to fix his mistake and stop this threat that he accidentally uh, allowed to um, manifest. We'll see where it goes. I love that. It sounds like it's going to be the movie. I feel like all the movies are superheroes (laughs) makes a mistake and has to deal with it for the rest of the movie. I uh, read a few books that kind of made... Marvel Studios uh, movie connections within them. One of them being the other one shot that I read, which was uh, Fury, uh, Nick Fury. Oh yeah. And Al Ewing writes this one and he, it's basically him taking his shot at getting rid of the real Nick Fury so that the (laughs) Samuel Jackson version is the only one. And, you know, I guess it's, too confusing to totally change Nick Fury into a black guy and then have both of them existing. And it's too confusing to have Nick Fury as like a space cop man on the wall. And it's, that is so bizarro. It's too confusing to have him be like the new watcher. Right. What happened to his son, Steve? (laughs) This is, this is his son, the black guy that looks like Samuel Jackson. You didn't know that Samuel Jackson was Nick Fury's son. Remember he had that other son they'd... in the nineties with the with the ponytail. Yeah. I thought they'd worked a different wheeze. Well, ever since Robo Dugan, Shield hasn't <laughs> quite been the same. Yeah. So it's basically off you go, Nick Fury. Um Again. And, uh all that's left now is Samuel Jackson version. The arts by Scott Eaton, Tom Riley, Adam Kubert, and uh, a few others. Um I could have done without the new Scorpio. Uh, she's a real chatty Kathy. Remember the old in the <laughs> old Steranko stories. Scorpio was 
one yeah. of Nick Fury's big, and it was like trying to get that Scorpio key and all that. Well, they do this, but it's a female Scorpio who now is going to be this Nick Fury's Scorpio as opposed to the real Nick Fury's real Scorpio. And um, my, she just my body is the whole key. Yeah, it um, it, you know, Al Ewing's a good writer, and uh, yes, he, he did what he was probably paid to do here. <laughs> I say reboot all the Zodiac guys. <laughs> There's a wacky collection of. Yep. Is there any kind of gags where like uh, the Contessa Fontaine shows up? Is like what, <laughs> Nick? You've changed. Yeah. Right. No, no. And then you find out it's it's Nick Fury's other brother. Uh, well, it's I, the robot. Remember they're that? all LMDs. Avengers with, with uh, Brubaker, and it was like the robot. They're all LMDs all the way down. Not Gabe. Not Gabe too. And Max. <laughs> and then I also read this Moon Knight um, spinoff limited series the first issue of it it's moon knight city of the dead written by david pipos and art by marcello ferreira and it also brings marvel studios um, elements into the comics by first suggesting that there's a history with uh specter with that um layla girl who was the marlene arlene replacement on the show and then and the replacement for that for that character too. And then at the so end, wasn't that character someone else? At the end of the issue, he reunites with her, and she's the Scarlet Scarab, and everything, just like yeah on the show. Um, but it is set in current Moon Knight continuity because Moon Knight uses the mystical powers of Doctor Badir, um, his uh, Hunter's Moon guy, to travel to the City of the Dead to track the Sons of the Jackal. Not that jackal? Nope. <laughs> the one from the show. Okay. <laughs> Miles Warren. Wait, no. <laughs> yeah, what if all of a sudden Miles Warren shows up? You'd be like, what? <laughs> Turns all, out. Then behind him is another guy, and the Punisher's like, I've been waiting for you. Turns out it's just been a clone of the original Moon Knight. Yikes. All right, Kevin, give me another. Okay, have you caught up on the end of the run for um, Zardsky uh, to Shadow for Daredevil? So this would be the latest series ran, well, like 14 issues? Yeah, And that's 14. what came out of the Devil's... Um, what the heck was it called? Devil's, Devil's Reign? Devil's Reign? After just saying Dark Rain a little while ago, it seems like, oh, that seems like a too easy of a Freudian slip to be making. But I guess that really was what it was. Yeah. Um, and, oh. and, and I really liked that whole Devil's Rain thing, and you didn't. Um, I know, that was so weird, wasn't it? Like, yeah, you were, you were a bigger fan of that. But I'll, I'll give you the mic right back in a second. But I got to say that um, I have picked up this whole series, but I haven't read a page of it yet. But I'm wow. looking forward to it. I really want to get into it. I know I'm going to like it because I liked all that stuff. So tell me, am I going to like it? <laughs> um, I'm going to say you're going to like it. I won't say more. I'll just say it'll seem more. It'll, it'll maintain the same quality throughout. 
like I just have weird hangups, I guess, about certain things in this book, or I want to see certain things. I mean, this is also the week or the month, I'm not sure, is when they have those multi-page uh, John Romita Marvel Remembers tributes in the front, which is really nice, too. Hmm. But yeah, this, uh, I don't know how, how I, how well I feel about how this ended. Like, I don't think it's a big moment where I was just like, oh yeah, this is so great. Like, I don't think it was, it was that either. Like there's been some runs where I'm just like, wow, that's a great ending. It is sort of like a handoff to the next guy. Like, oh yeah, what are you going to do now? Because 13 is sort of like an ending. And then 14 is more like the epilogue. Well, that's better than doing like a six-issue limited series where he's walking across the country as Matt Murdock trying to find himself before the next series. I mean... Just do it as the last issue of the previous series, please. (laughs) I mean, Steve, you, you, you could have inserted a series like that in here if you really wanted to. I mean... So, like, I'm I'm not 100% sure what happened. Like, I saw what happened, but then there's another issue, and I'm like, did that happen, or is what is, is, is that happening, or are we doing that other thing? Did Daredevil really fly that plane? Yeah, exactly. Oh, <laughs> uh, it's so weird, but, yeah, I guess I've been ups and downs on this whole, four, you know, four-year run there, and it's just, like, I couldn't see where... Like it just seemed at the beginning. Remember when we we began this run? It was it was like I thought it was just an excuse to to do some more serious irritable stuff. But then once I saw where it was going, once we did the Kingpin stuff, the Kingpin stuff I gotta say has been pretty cool. Yeah, I like thought, seeing him deal with all that stuff. All I those thought, people. I thought the Electra stuff was handled well, including her yes, helping yes. out and donning the suit and all that stuff. It's like there are some things. I won't go as far to call them tropes, but there are some events that we've seen sort of happen to Daredevil in the past, and they were redone, and they seemed kind of fresh because they were done well. Yeah, like, I want, I definitely want to see Elektra after this, and I, I have no reason to think, well, other than there's a new creative team, and they might just say, yeah, we're done with that, and then it just disappears, but it's not like it's impossible to to have some of these things go on. I'm like, if you wanted to, like, I don't really know what the new series is going to be about. And then you had this series, and I think I talked about that one issue where there was sort of like this guy that's like an angel or whatever, or God or whatever, and I was just like, oh, that, that issue like majorly turned me off the book. So I'm like, I want this guy out of my book. <laughs> So, <laughs> I mean, there, there's still, uh, that's always still here. But then there was some real cool stuff where Daredevil's like, I'm going to make some actual change in the world. And sort of like, I, I won't put it on the level as like when the X-Men went to, to um, the island and everything and had their own culture. I mean, Daredevil could just be too just totally screwing things up and breaking the law. And, you know, people are not going to be happy about that. But still, like, I'm just like, 
yeah, let's just do this for like a long time, right? I just this just get very granular and and explore every nook and cranny of that thing. But I mean, it's not not the way it was gonna go. Like it's it's the end of the run. So I mean, things have to wind down. So I mean, that's disappointing in a way, but I mean. I mean, overall, there is a lot of great stuff, so I can't be too too upset. And then the artwork's great too. And I just love that hilarious when uh, Tuchetto does the Electra's hair, and it's just massive. It's just like it has a life of its own. Yeah, man, I just love that hair. It's like Diodato hair back in the day. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it just makes me laugh. But Kevin, everything's burning. Like uh, Daredevil's come crashing down. The Punisher's uh, gone. The X books. The Iron Man. It's all going down. But did you Did you see? Kate, this isn't. This is a side point. Do you think I'm crazy? And I say yes. But there is that like the the issue before the like the fall fall of X. They they mentioned the season of fall. And like Groot was falling, but then I started wondering, do they mean like autumn or do they mean fall? And if it's just autumn, then we're going to come around and it's going to be the spring and it's going to be like rebirth, hmm. like new life. Like like when the season comes around, like the, the everything will be better, will come out of winter or do they mean like fall, like everything's falling? Because I, I thought it was funny that even mentioned the season and that one X-Men issue. And I'm like, did you just, no. like, are we going to look back on that? Right, are we talking a sliding time scale here? or <laughs> <laughs> How long till spring? I've noticed before when they, when they stuck things in. And you're like, wow, they mentioned that thing, like, in some book, like, two years ago. And no one even, like, they just thought it was some, like, future reference or, or some crazy mention but it actually turned out to be a thing so i was like is this gonna be a thing like is this gonna be the and i'm like did i just catch it or am i just crazy did these books makes me crazy hmm. i guess we'll see and then you can laugh <laughs> a crazy laugh yes a maniacal one all right got one more andrew well, I'll make it quick. Because I am dumb, I am chasing the end of the Marvel G.I. Joe run oh, where the fun. books are ridiculously overpriced. Oh, really? Due to, yeah. I mean, they're fine comics, but it's just, I think those, you know, pre-bankruptcy books are always hard just yeah. because there isn't a huge print run and distribution was wanky and... G.I. Joe is currently very popular now, even though there's no movie for some weird reason. I think the toys are doing well or whatever. So, but I'm like, no time like the president. Let's run them down. So I picked up 152. It went to 155 before it wow. eventually wow. gets rebooted at go. other publishers. So this is Larry Hama, of course. Pencils, Phil Gosier, Inks, Scott Koblish. <laughs> Kobe. Hey. I always like. But this is a funny, this is a like a one and done, which was nice for this time. Of, you know, let's be honest, 90s comics. 
not a ton of one and dones traditionally is not how I think of it, but it's a really nice one. It's a kind of the formation of GI Joe in the sense of the head guy is uh, general Colton, but he was a Lieutenant in Vietnam. So it's a classic war book, like a story of him and his small crew trying to get out of an ambush in Vietnam with all the Larry Hama, you know, my Mike one six decided to choke on a bulge case military talk and everything. And I don't know. It just got me thinking about how some of us grew up on a lot of media that focused on world war two and Vietnam and lots of stories about stuck behind enemy lines and it's kind of hopeless and everything's hard to figure out and kind of doomed. And maybe they tell those stories now, but I feel like they've sort of shifted in, how they talk about war with like desert storm and stuff like that. I feel like you don't have the, as many stories about doomed guys trapped behind enemy lines type of thing. I mean, they must have some, a lot of PTSD and stuff like that. Yeah. I think they've shifted the, the focus, which is probably makes sense. It's just weird that. So for me, even though I never read this story, there was a bit of nostalgia because I certainly watched tons of movies and read tons of comics set in Vietnam. And there's a bit, so he's with his squad and they're dying. And what happened was the president went to get him out about starting this new unit. And it's just also Hama's kind of respect for, but also fighting the chain of authority at times. Like the guy gets in trouble because one of the men they pull out dies And the guy wanted to make sure he got buried. He's like, don't leave me my corpse out there just, you know, with the tarp draped over me. Because he saw that before and it freaked him out. And so the guy promised, and he does. So the president had to wait for him and he gets in trouble because he wanted to bury his team. It was a strangely affecting story, too. I'm like, for just some random 90s book, I was like, boy, this is really getting to me. I like this. I'd forgotten I don't know. I read a bunch of war books as a kid, but I kind of haven't read a lot since. And normally G.I. Joe is very, it's a war book, but it's also like ninjas and robots <laughs> and lasers and crap. So to have a more serious actual war book with just machine guns and shooting people and people dying and stuff. Was and also dying, <laughs> dying, dying, dying. You know, not like, no offense to your manga, Kevin, but you know, the kangaroo may show up again at some later story or whatever. Like, this dude is dead and literally buried. I was just, like, really surprised. And it ends with a bunch of crazy pinups. The other thing that's weird for 93 or 94, wherever this is, everybody's muscular, but still within kind of a regular... It hasn't gone full, like, Rob Liefeld <laughs> muscular. Still within normal I mean, limits. The Lady Scarlet... She has the leg thing, which by now has taken over. Oh, yeah. You know, where she's got. <laughs> what is she was this again? Are, <laughs> <laughs> Always love Scarlet. Eight. Yeah, I do too. I'm, I don't really necessarily love Scarlet with the impossibly long legs. <laughs> yeah, another great comic book redhead. <laughs> I don't. Um, it's funny because I was getting out of comics. So for me to go back, and I'm sure at the time it seemed normal, but it seems so extreme to look at these pinups with like i said legs that go all the way to the top <laughs> makes me laugh but i do like you know it's got and this is snake eyes when he was kind of 
had some of his face showing and was like a drooling maniac. What? But Storm Shadow looked cool and Rock and Roll and Stalker are right in the jungle. Yeah. Weird Vietnam comics. I feel like we should have brought Phil on for some 80s throwback love, even though this is the 90s. But still, a really cool issue, 152. I think IDW collected all this Marvel stuff in different trades, which is probably the smart way to get it, as opposed to paying... I don't know what I paid for this. I probably paid 40 bucks or something for this. Yeah. Give or take. Like, it's just... A lot. And now I know what you're thinking. Oh, that's not a lot, but it's not. These aren't like first appearances or this is a movie comic or something. These are just the last few issues are just crazy expensive for me. I know some of Kevin 40 bucks is what he drops out of his pocket on the way to the comic book store. But for <laughs> me, that's a lot for a floppy. That's how much annuals cost in Canada. Yeah, it sounds like a regular issue. Yeah. But I was pretty stoked about that one being such a real nice one, kind of one and done, wrapped in, as opposed to some of these ones I'm picking up. They're all good, but they're a lot more 90s with the robots and ninjas and lasers, which I like. I like that part, but I was uh, kind of caught robots off guard. taking steroids from the ninjas, though. <laughs> yeah. Well, they also had the, like, eco-warriors and, like, oh, drug dealings right. and stuff. Like, God. it got pretty... Let's chase the trend for a while. So just to have a old timey war comic was a weird caught me off guard. And I recommend it. So one fifty two, look it up. And I like Scott Koblish, the the sure. man of a thousand talents. I always right? have, feel like he can draw anything, any way, any style. All right. Our last book here is The Scarlet Witch Ongoing. That's written by a friendly acquaintance of mine, Steve Orlando, who also wrote the Iceman book I mentioned. I always see him at the Baltimore Comic Con, and he comes out to our little one-day Albany Con uh, show now and again, too. The art on the issues that I read are by Sarah Pacelli and Russell Dowderman, and uh, who does the covers, too, that are just really striking. I'm not up to date, Steve, but I am enjoying this is a pretty book i mean i think i think of the annual was maybe the last one i got but i haven't read it yet but i'm interested to hear but i think it looks good like so far it's pretty stuff yeah. i mean it's a lot of bringing stuff in from the mcu yeah so if that's a problem. problem that's it's just that's that's the reality we live in so yeah. i mean they they brought in darcy the tech whiz into wanda's supporting cast and more regrettably, I think it's uh, bringing Agatha Harkness back, but it's the way younger Marvel Studios version, and uh, I could do without that. She's old and she doesn't care. Uh, <laughs> deal with it. Like, when was she all of a sudden vain that she would make herself young? This just seems silly. But uh, The vision issue is probably the issue I most enjoyed that I've out of all the ones I've read so far. Yeah, that issue was a good issue. I just read issues five and six. Uh, issue five had Dowderman interiors, and six has Lorenzo Tometa and Sarah Pacelli art. You know, and it gives Wanda a solo focus. We're used to seeing her so paired with the Vision or in a, the Avengers and stuff. It's letting her develop her own supporting cast here. But in issues four and five, this seemingly unstoppable warrior woman from another dimension 
no, not Thundra, is after Darcy and the Scarlet Witch gets in the way. And it's a fun villain of the month two-parter that's a wham-bam and it has a clever ending to it and stuff, but it has a lot of good um, action and uh, just a fun old-timey Marvel's issue. And then in issue seven, Wanda helps out a fugitive from the Kree-Skrull Empire who's looking for justice and Wanda wants to get it for her. And, uh, you know, she's got access, right? Her son is the partner of the Empire's Emperor, right? Yeah. So the series started slow, but I think it's kind of finding its legs. The Like you said, the Vision issue was good. The annual was pretty good. These issues I found entertaining. Um, definitely worthy of, uh, you know, justifying greenlighting a Scarlet Witch ongoing. Um, some of these stories have been fun. Yeah, it's good setup. Good place for her to uh, to be. I don't like mind the, in, in in introduction of Darcy. Like, it fit with it fit the book. It was good. I think the problem is uh, Steve. We all know that uh, Agatha Harkness is always overshadowed by Ebony. So you know yeah. that's the real draw for most of us. And you know the the witch is one of those. Um, <laughs> it sounds weird to say it, but Ben Grimm type characters who's like so connected to so many different parts of the Marvel universe and groups, right? It's like, she's got the Avengers that she's around. She's got the uh, mutants that she can be around. She's got the um, new warriors or not new warriors. What do we call them? The young Avengers crowd there that the, like the emperor and everything um, that she, that she can work in those circles. Uh, she's, she's the, the magic users of the marvel universe um so there's a lot of a lot of ways that you can go and that they've already uh, taken the time to uh travel to already so it's a good book definitely a solid solid title and those covers man yeah all right so that's a good addendum to our recent read round table of the our summer reading Andrew, you brought up Done and Ones before. Uh, let's do a round of Done and Ones next episode. I mean, you got to come up with another one, but. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Andrew. Until Faustus tells Stiltman to take something for his kleptomania, make mine marble. Later. Wow, Stiltman. <laughs>